Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Daphne, and I am reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, September the 28th. We begin with the weather. Today, partly sunny, high of 66. Tonight, clouds breaking, low of 54. Friday, tomorrow, cloudy with rain possible in the afternoon. High of 65, low of 59. Saturday, mostly cloudy with a chance of rain. High of 68, low of 58. Sunday, sunny and nice. High of 70, low of 57. And Monday, mostly sunny and pleasant. High of 71, low of 57. And for those of us who are keeping track... We have less than 12 hours of daylight. The sun rose at 6.34. It sets at 6.29. That's 11 hours and 55 minutes of daylight. Here it comes. And on to the lottery. For the numbers game, drawn yesterday, the midday drawing was 0-6. 0-6. Again, midday drawing, 9-3-0-6. And the numbers game evening drawing was 3-4-9-7. Again, 3-4-9-7. For Mash Cash, the drawing was yesterday, Wednesday, September 27th, and the numbers were 1-5-8-28-34. Again, for Mass Cash, 1582834. For Powerball, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 1, 7, 46, 47, 63, with the Powerball of 7. Again, drawn yesterday, the 27th Powerball numbers are 1, 7, 46, 47, 63, and the Powerball is 7. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 15, 30, 35, 42, 60, with a Mega Ball of 16. Again, for Mega Millions, the numbers are 15, 30, 35, 42, 60, with the Mega Ball of 16. For the Mega Bucks Doubler, the numbers are 11, 15, 30, 32, 38, 41, and 0 is the doubler. Again, Mega Bucks Doubler drawn yesterday, the 27th. The numbers are 11, 15, 30, 32, 38, 41, with the mega ball of, or the doubler, sorry, of zero. And finally, Lucky for Life, <clears throat> drawn yesterday, the 27th. The numbers are 15, 26, 31, 
33-38 with a lucky ball of 10. Again, the lucky for life, 15-26-31-33-38 with a lucky ball of 10. And now for the news from the front page of the Cape Cod Times. Congress edges closer to shutdown. Senate and House move further apart on funding, and this is reported by Lisa Mascaro and Stephen Groves for the Associated Press. Congress is starkly divided over very different paths to preventing a federal shutdown. The Senate charging ahead with a bipartisan package to temporarily fund the government, but the House slogging through a long-shot effort with no real chance of finishing by Saturday's deadline. With days remaining before a federal closure, the stakes are rising with no resolution at hand. A shutdown would furlough millions of federal employees, leave the military without pay, disrupt air travel, and cut off vital safety net services. And it would be politically punishing to lawmakers whose job it is to fund the government. President Biden, who earlier this year reached a budget deal with Speaker Kevin McCarthy that became law, believes it's up to the House Republicans to deliver. Quote, a deal is a deal, said White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. This is for them to fix. Late Tuesday, the Senate pushed ahead in sweeping bipartisan fashion to break the stalemate, advancing a temporary measure called a Continuing Resolution, or CR, to keep the government running through November 17th. It would maintain funding at current levels with a $6 billion boost for Ukraine and a $6 billion and $6 billion for U.S. disaster relief, among other provisions. It's on track for Senate approval later this week, but faces long odds in the House. The Republican McCarthy, pushed by a hard right flank that rejects the deal he made with Biden and is demanding steep spending cuts, showed no interest in the Senate's bipartisan effort or the additional money for Ukraine. Quote, I think Their priorities are bad, he said, about the Senate effort. Instead, McCarthy is reviving plans for the House Republicans' own stopgap funding measure that would slash federal spending by 8% for many agencies and attach a hardline border security measure that conservatives are demanding. He's planning a Friday vote, but Biden, Democrats, And even some Republicans have said the package is too extreme. McCarthy is trying to goad Biden into negotiations over the border package, highlighting the record numbers of migrants crossing the southern border with Mexico. But the Speaker has little leverage at this point, and the White House has downplayed the prospect of talks. But first, McCarthy is expected to spend much of this week trying to pass some of the bills needed to fund government agencies, defense, homeland security, agriculture, and state and foreign operations. It's a daunting task ahead. The House Republicans advanced those bills late Tuesday after a, after 
a day of setbacks and disarray. But it is not at all clear McCarthy has the votes from his hard right flank to actually pass the four bills this week. One of the key right flank holdouts, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, who is fighting for more cuts and opposes the funds for Ukraine, said she voted against advancing the package because the bills are headed toward defeat anyway. I'm trying to save everyone from wasting time, she said. The 79-page Senate bill would fund the government at current levels and would encourage the Ukraine and U.S. disaster, excuse me, and would include the Ukraine and U.S. disaster aid that has been in jeopardy. It also includes an extension of Federal Aviation Administration provisions expiring Saturday. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the Senate bill shows, quote, bipartisanship can triumph over extremism, close quote. Schumer said, quote, we all know together that a government shutdown will be devastating, devastating to this country, close quote. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell appeared on board with the bipartisan Senate plan, saying, quote, government shutdowns are bad news, close quote. The hard-right House Republicans are being egged on by Donald Trump, the front-runner in the 2024 Republican presidential primary, who has urged them to stand firm in the fight or, quote, shut it down. It is setting up a split screen later this week as House Republicans hold their first Biden impeachment inquiry hearing, probing the business dealings of his son, Hunter Biden. It also comes as former Trump officials are floating their own plans to slash government and the federal workforce if the former president retakes retakes the White House. McCarthy who said he spoke to McConnell on Tuesday, brushed off Trump's influence as just a negotiating tactic, even as the far-right members keep torpedoing his plans. The Speaker has given the holdouts many of their demands, but it still has not been enough as they press for more, including gutting funding for Ukraine. The hardline Republicans want McCarthy to drop the deal he made with Biden and stick to earlier promises for spending cuts that he made to them in January to win their votes for the Speaker's gavel, citing the nation's rising debt load. Republican Representative Matt Gates of Florida, a key Trump ally leading the right flank, said on Fox News Channel that a shutdown is not optimal but, quote, it's better than continuing on the current path that we are on to America's financial ruin. A government shutdown would furlough millions of federal employees, leave the military without pay, disrupt air travel, and cut off vital safety net services, and it would be politically punishing to lawmakers whose job it is to fund government. From the front page, again, of the Cape Cod Times, the middle article with a fabulous picture of a gentleman with a Cape Cod Community College t-shirt on, and the title is, quote, A Real Breath of Fresh Air, Overcoming Poverty, Violence, Brazilian Student Thrived. 
And this is reported by Rashik Tabusum Ujib for the Cape Cod Times. On a Sunday morning in March 2016, Thales D'Souza woke up to the sounds of gunfire in his home in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The police were raiding the house in search of his uncle. Narrowly escaping death, D'Souza's mom decided to move to the United States, along with young Thales and his sister, Lorena. Seven years later, D'Souza is a student at Cape Cod Community College and the president of its student government. He is the first black African Brazilian to serve in that role. After a long and difficult process, D'Souza moved to Cape Cod in June 2016. He attended Barnstable High School for two years and then later transferred and graduated from Dennis Yarmouth Regional High School. While studying at Barnstable, D'Souza got a job at McDonald's, where he had the opportunity to practice and improve his English. D'Souza speaks three languages now, Portuguese, English, and Spanish. Working and attending school was a grueling experience. Quote, I was working 40 hours a week and also going to high school. I used to go to work at McDonald's right after school, closing McDonald's at the end of my shift and then going to sleep at 2 a.m. and waking up at 6 again to go to school, said D'Souza. I was trying to survive. His journey has been a tale of struggle, inspiration, and hope. Quote, he's an incredibly charismatic student, and when he smiles, it just lights up the room, said Lisa Heller Boragine, professor of arts and communication at Cape Cod Community College and his academics advisor. Quote, it's a real breath of fresh air to have somebody who is so positive and engaging. We're definitely very lucky to have him as a student here, she said. D'Souza, 25, who had previously served as vice president, was elected as the student government president in May. Quote, coming from this background and all this trauma, and for me to be a voice for all these students, being able to represent each one of them is a blessing, he said. D'Souza had a solid grounding before he went to Cape Cod Community College. Barnstable High has a good program for foreign bilingual students, which greatly helped him. Quote, they have teachers who understand your language and also other students who speak your language to help you, D'Souza said. At Dennis Yarmouth Regional High School, D'Souza had a chance to hone his English skills further as he got more involved with the student community, helping out other bilingual students. Quote, transferring to DY was life-changing for me, said D'Souza. His time at the school helped him grow more confident. After graduation, he kept busy working as a manager for Wendy's for almost three years and worked briefly at Chick-fil-A. Though D'Souza was thriving in his school and community, there were moments of despair. Quote, sometimes there's a way people treat you knowing that you don't speak a lot of English, he said. Also, people's attitudes often changed as they saw me as a black person. The challenge was not just communication. It was recognizing and accepting the fact that we are also part of the community and that we have a voice, too. Close quote. D'Souza grew up in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Rio de Janeiro. 
Looking back at his childhood, D'Souza recalls the many times when he and his friends would be playing outside and have to rush inside when gunfire erupted on the streets. Quote, there were moments in those situations where I saw myself about to die, said D'Souza. That's a totally different experience, nothing like life in the United States. His mother, Morisea D'Souza, moved to the United States in search of a better future and for her children who have that chance now. Cape Cod has a growing population of Brazilian immigrants stretching back many years. Michael Messenas, founder and president of Health Ministry, a Cape Cod nonprofit that helps immigrants with learning English, health care, and crisis intervention, says Talas de Souza's story is inspiring. People can look at Talas and see that this is someone who came from Brazil as an immigrant, and he was able to put himself through college, finish high school, even get elected as the president of student government. It is a huge inspiration for other young immigrants moving here, Messinas said. Quote, this is a place where dreams come true. America is a land of opportunities, and there are always resources and people that are willing to help, said Messinas. Youngsters should never give up in terms of career or whatever they want to do in life and thrive. Quote, immigrants have a different perspective than people who grew up here, said D'Souza. Coming from a different background and different culture, immigrants and foreign students are most likely to become leaders as they experienced more hardship and struggle, close quote. According to academic advisor Boragin, foreign students' struggles are not limited to just academics. Quote, they also have to deal with economic challenges, some students are faring better than others, and the most important thing is to help them connect with resources they need, she said. D'Souza is majoring in political science with a minor in marketing and social media. He is also a founder of the first Jesus Club at the college. The club, according to the college website, brings together students to affect the entire campus through prayer, acts of service, testimonies and weekly gatherings that share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone who attends. Quote, when I got involved with the student government, I became passionate about it, and I realized I want to get into politics, said D'Souza. Said I love working with people, and my calling in life is having influence over places and people so I can make people's lives better, he said. Right now, D'Souza's focus is getting a good GPA, building a resume, and then applying to colleges in Massachusetts to pursue his dream of becoming a politician. As student government pre president, D'Souza has several ideas. Along with getting students at the college spe special discounts in restaurants, D'Souza also aims to work on discounted tuition fees for students who cannot afford it. According to D'Souza, one of his priorities as president is to help students who struggle with addiction. Quote, we plan to put a small emergency overdose kit on campus so that if anything ever happens to someone, there's a way to save their lives, he said. Potentially, it would be a very rare event, but if it does happen, I want the campus to be a place that can offer help.
D'Souza attributes his success to God and his mother. Quote, if it weren't for God, I wouldn't have made it this far. God was the only one I turned to in desperate times, and God saved me every step of the way, D'Souza said. He says his mom, Morisea, is the source of his strength and the main contributor to his success. Quote, my mother worked so hard when we first came. We didn't have a place to stay. We were kicked out of the hotel, and she struggled so much, D'Souza said. Quote, back then we cried together, and then during my high school graduation, we were happy together. She's the one who cried with me and laughed with me during better days. I owe her. Here's another article from the front page of today's Cape Cod Times. New York judge rules Trump defrauded banks and insurers. And this is reported by Michael R. Cisak of the Associated Press. New York. A judge ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump committed fraud for years while building the real estate empire that catapulted him to fame and the White House, and he ordered some of the former president's companies removed from his control and dissolved. Judge Arthur Angeron, ruling in a civil lawsuit brought by New York Attorney, Attorney General Letitia James, found that Trump and his company deceived banks, insurers, and others by massively overvaluing his assets and exaggerating his net worth on paperwork used in making deals and securing loans. Angeron argued and ordered that some of Trump's business licenses be rescinded as punishment, making it difficult or impossible for them to do business in New York, and said he would continue to have an independent monitor oversee Trump organization operations. If not successfully appealed, the order would strip Trump of his authority to make strategic and financial decisions over some of his key properties in the state. Trump, in a series of statements, railed against the decision, calling it, quote, un-American, close quote, and part of an ongoing plot to damage his campaign to return to the White House. Quote, my civil rights have been violated and some appellate court, whether federal or state, must reverse this horrible un-American decision, he wrote on his Truth Social site. He insisted his company had, quote, done a magnificent job for New York State and done business perfectly, calling it, quote, a very sad day for the New York State system of justice, close quote. Trump's lawyer, Christopher Keyes, said they would appeal, calling the decision, quote, completely disconnected from the facts and governing law, close quote. Angeron's ruling, days before the start of a non-jury trial in James's lawsuit, is the strongest repudiation yet of Trump's carefully quaffed image as a wealthy and shrewd real estate mogul turned political powerhouse. Beyond mere bragging about his riches, Trump, his company, and key executives repeatedly lied about them on his annual financial statements, reaping rewards such as federal favorable loan terms and lower insurance costs, Engeron found. Those tactics crossed a line and violated the law, the judge said, rejecting Trump's contention that a disclaimer on the financial statements absolved him of any wrongdoing.
quote, In defendant's world, rent-regulated apartments are worth the same as unregulated apartments. Restricted land is worth the same as unrestricted land. Restrictions can evaporate into thin air. A disclaimer by one party casting responsibility on the other party exonerates the other party's lies, Engeron wrote in his 35-page ruling. That is a fantasy world, not the real world, close quote. Manhattan prosecutors had looked into bringing criminal charges over the same conduct, but cl- declined to do so, leaving James to sue Trump and seek penalties that aim to disrupt his and his family's ability to do business. Engeron's ruling, in a phase of the case known as summary judgment, resolves the key claim in James's lawsuit, but several others remain. He'll decide on those claims and James's request for $25 million in penalties at a trial starting October the 2nd. Trump's lawyers have asked an appeals court for a delay. Quote, Today, a judge ruled in our favor and found that Donald Trump and the Trump Organization engaged in years of financial fraud, James said in a statement. We look forward to presenting the rest of our case at trial. Trump's lawyers, in their own summary judgment bid, had asked the judge to throw out the case, arguing that there wasn't any evidence the public was harmed by Trump's actions. They also argued that many of the allegations in the lawsuit were barred by the statute of limitations. Engeron, noting that he had rejected those arguments earlier in the case, equated them to the plot of the film Groundhog Day. He fined five defense lawyers $7,500 each as punishment for, quote, engaging in repetitive and frivolous, close quote, arguments, but denied James's request to sanction Trump and other defendants. James, a Democrat, sued Trump and the Trump Organization a year ago, accusing them of routinely inflating the value of assets like skyscrapers, golf courses, and his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, padding his bottom line by millions. Engeron found that Trump consistently overvalued Mar-a-Lago, inflating its value on one financial statement by as much as 2,300%. The judge also rebuked Trump for lying about the size of his Manhattan apartment. Trump claimed his three-story Trump Tower penthouse was nearly three times its actual size, valuing it at $327 million. Quote, A discrepancy of this order of magnitude by a real estate developer sizing up his own living space of decades can only be considered fraud. Angeron wrote. Under the ruling, limited liability companies that control some of Trump's key properties, such as 40 Wall Street, will be dissolved, and authority over how to run them handed over to a receiver. Trump would lose his authority over whom to hire or fire, whom to rent office space to, and other key decisions. Quote, 
The decision seeks to nationalize one of the most successful corporate empires in the United States and seize control over private property, all the while acknowledging there is zero evidence of any default, breach, late payment, or any complaint of harm, Keyes said after the decision. James's lawsuit is one of several legal headaches for Trump, the Republican frontrunner in next year's election. He has been indicted four times in the last six months, accused in Georgia and Washington, D.C., of plotting to overturn his 2020 election loss, in Florida of hoarding classified documents, and in Manhattan of falsifying business records related to hush money paid on his behalf. The Trump Organization was convicted of tax fraud last year in an unrelated criminal case for helping executives dodge taxes on perks such as apartments and cars. This article is entitled, U.S. Soldier Who Bolted in Korea in American Hands. This is reported by Kim Tan Young, Matthew Lee, and Lolita C. Balder for the Associated Press. The U.S. soldier who sprinted into North Korea across the heavily fortified border between the Koreas two months ago was released into American custody, the White House announced Wednesday. Earlier, North Korea had said it would expel Private Travis King, though some had expected the North to drag out his detention in hopes of squeezing concessions from Washington at a time of high tensions between the countries. Quote, U.S. officials have secured the return of Private Travis King from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said in a statement. We appreciate the dedication of the interagency team that has worked tirelessly out of concern for Private King's well-being. Officials said they did not know exactly why North Korea decided to expel King, but said they expected that Pyongyang determined that, as a low-ranking serviceman, he had no real value in terms of either leverage or information. One official, who was not authorized to comment and requested anonymity, said the North Koreans may have decided that King was more trouble to keep than release. Swedish officials took King to the Chinese border, where he was met by U.S. Ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, the Swedish ambassador to China, and at least one U.S. Defense Department official. Biden administration's official insisted they provided no concessions to North Korea to secure the soldier's release. King was being flown to a U.S. military base in South Korea before being returned to the U.S. King's expulsion almost certainly does not end his troubles. His fate remains uncertain, given that he was declared AWOL by the U.S. government. That can mean punishment by time in military jail, forfeiture of pay, or a dishonorable discharge. In the near term, officials said their focus would be on helping King reintegrate into U.S. society upon his return, including helping him address mental and emotional concerns, according to a senior Biden administration official who briefed reporters. The soldier was, quote, in good spirits and good health upon his release, according to one senior administration official. 
He was to be taken to Brook Army Medical Center at Fort Sam Houston in Texas and was expected to arrive overnight, officials said. King, who had served in South Korea, ran into North Korea while on a civilian tour of a border village on June 8, July 18th, becoming the first American confirmed to be detained in the North in nearly five years. At the time he crossed the border, King was supposed to be heading to Fort Bliss, Texas, following his release from prison in South Korea on an assault conviction. On Wednesday, the North's official Korean Central News Agency reported that authorities had finished their questioning of King. It said that he confessed to illegally entering the North because he harbored, quote, ill feeling against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army and was, quote, disillusioned about the unequal U.S. society. We're now at about midpoint, and it's time for obituaries. We have five today. Mary Martha Tony Wildly Grader, Grady passed away on Friday, September 22, 2023, in Haverhill, Massachusetts. She was 84 years old. With her passing, Tony rejoins her husband of 57 years, Donald Raymond Grady Sr., Tony was born in Asheville, North Carolina on March 18, 1939, the only child of Martha and Jack Wildy. She graduated from Hamden Hall in Hamden, Connecticut, where she was her class president and organized reunions for decades. Tony then studied at UConn, where she met Don. She took great pride in raising her two sons while working as a successful real estate broker at Homes Unlimited in Foxborough, Massachusetts, until her retirement in 1998. Tony was a deeply purposeful, service-oriented woman. She was a member of the Democratic Town Committee of Foxborough and joined the League of Women Voters in Massachusetts and New Jersey. She was also a deacon at St. Mary's Church in Foxborough and a volunteer with the Wacoit Bay National Estuarine Research Reserve. Her excitement and enthusiasm were contagious. When people visited, she chatted about local politics as she set up binoculars on the osprey nests outside her window. She became a dedicated member of the Wacoit Congregational Church in Falmouth, Mass., where she relished in community and love for Jesus. Tony was never idle. In their 57 years together, Tony and Don camped, golfed, played cards, and hosted parties. They, vaca- they vacationed at, quote, the land in Maine and participated in local functions. Tony took thousands of pictures of their adventures curated the best, and saved the rest for her friends and family. She was a woman of two worlds. Tony was a dedicated Boston sports fan. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick will be delighted to know that she devised many songs that were key to the Patriots' decades-long success. She named her two miniature schnauzers, Nomar and Zonder, after the two Red Sox shortstops, and she kept the dogs apprised of the success of their human counterparts. But even though she lived in the Northeast for the majority of her life, Tony never lost her Southern accent or charm. 
She treated her family and visitors like royalty whenever they stepped into her home, and she took great pride in her status as the best host any of us knew. One of her greatest joys was decorating her home for every season and holiday. We will miss it and her fiercely. Tony is survived by her two sons, Donald, Wanda, and Jeffrey Grady. Her three grandchildren, Caroline Grady, Patricia Grady Dominguez, Dennis, and her Jeff and Jeffrey Sean Grady, Sarah. Her two great-grandchildren, Luna and Julian, scores of nieces and nephews, and countless friends. Visitation will be on Monday, October the 2nd, 2023, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 74 Algonquin Avenue, Route 151, in Mashpee. A, fe- a funeral service will be held on Tuesday, October 3, 2023, at 11 a.m. at Wacoit Congregational Church, 15 Parsons Lane, off Route 28 in East Falmouth. A burial will immediately follow at Oak Grove Cemetery, 46 Jones Road in Falmouth. In lieu of flowers, donations in Tony's memory may be made to the Massachusetts, New Hampshire chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, 309 Waverly Oaks Road, Waltham, Massachusetts, 02452, or online at www.alz.org. For online guestbook and directions, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Our next obituary is for Ellen Kelly Dixon, Dennis. Ellen Kelly Dixon, 71, passed away peacefully, surrounded by family on Sunday, September 24, 2023, after a battle with cancer. Ellen was born November 5, 1951, in Boston and raised in Dedham, Massachusetts, by Edward and Josephine Kelly. She grew up in a vibrant and busy household as the oldest of eight with seven younger brothers. Her parents lived through World War II and pursued careers in social work. They instilled a deep commitment to community in Ellen at an early age, Both of her parents received master's degrees from Boston College, and her dad spent his career with the Massachusetts welfare system after serving under Patton in Africa and Europe during World War II. Ellen made her mark at an early age. She attended the University of Massachusetts Boston, where her drive was to get involved in organizational community activities. She became the first student trustee at UMass Boston, gaining the same voting power as the rest of the board. She was also the chair of the organization, the organization 18 by 72, an effort to change the voting age in Massachusetts to 18 by 1972, which was accomplished. She graduated in 1973, and was a speaker at her class commencement exercises for UMass Boston. She was credited with having, quote, served with distinction as a university trustee. She has been a positive activist at this university and shown insights and interest in academic student 
affairs, close quote. Before entering the MBA program at Babson College in September 1975, she followed her parents' path into social work. In her first semester at Babson, she met the love of her life, Henry Chip Dixon, in her classes. After graduation in May 1977, Ellen and Chip started married life in Cleveland, Ohio, where she began her career in portfolio management and where the couple's three children were born. Ellen and Chip moved to Summit, New Jersey in 1993 and called it home for 25 years after two years in Chicago. In Summit, Ellen served as mayor during a time that included Hurricane Sandy, which demanded her constant presence. Her service also included six years on city council, several years on the zoning board, president of the PTO of a local elementary school and high school, and support of various other organizations like Rotary. Some of the awards she received, including Boy Scouts of America Good Scout Award in 2011, and in 2012, the Summit Business and Professional Women, BPW, honored her as Woman of the Year. They became Florida residents in 2018, where Ellen joined the boards of of the Beach Property Owners Association of Delray Beach and the Florida Coalition for Preservation. Ellen's greatest joys were her family and friends. A true extrovert, she had a talent for getting to know people and never met a stranger. She fielded daily phone calls from her adult children and lived her life as grandma. She has instilled her kindness and love of Cape Cod in her grandchildren over the last seven years. Ellen was a beloved wife, mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, and friend. Her spirit lives on with husband of 46 years, Henry Chip Dixon, children, Laura Goldstein and her husband, Justin, Julia Latai and her husband, Jim, and Henry Dixon Jr. and his wife, Amanda Yang Dixon. Brothers, Ed, Tom, Fred, Jim, Frank, Chris, and John. Sisters-in-law, Lena, Sue, Marianne, Dottie, Mona, Claudia, Tracy, Joy, Andrea, and Wendy. And brothers-in-law, Bart and Ace. Grandchildren, James, James, Elliot, Martin, Myla, Nora, Ella, and Dylan. 24 nieces and nephews, and a large network of family and friends. Ellen was predeceased by her parents, Ed and Josephine Kelly. A memorial service will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday, September 30th at Grace Church of East Dennis in Dennis, Massachusetts, followed by a celebration of life at 46 Pleasant Street, the corner of Cold Storage. In lieu of flowers, please send donations to umb.edu slash Dixon Scholarship. A service later in the year will be held in the Delray Beach area. Our next obituary is for Jane C. Smith Lynch. It is with deep and profound sadness her family announced the passing of Jane at her childhood home of more than 72 years on August 3, 2023. She was was 84 years old, 
and would have celebrated both her birthday and 65th wedding anniversary in recent weeks. Jane was a true Cape Codder and proud to be one. As the daughter of Gerald A. and Gladys E. Smith, founders of the celebrated Melrose Inn in Harwichport, she thrived in the innkeeper's environment. Working with her mom and dad was special, and the hundreds of guests who returned each year adored her. Her annual birthday parties were memorable, entertaining events. There was also time to ride her Morgan horse on the beach with her dad and swim in the waters of Nantucket Sound. The inn closed for the off-season, and it was family time in Florida. She attended local schools in Harwich, later moving on to Oak Grove, a friend's school for girls in Vassalboro, Maine. Upon graduation, she attended Cornell's University's renowned Statler School of Hotel Management, where there were few women at the time. In 1958, she married Daryl S. Lynch and inspired a magical journey of love and devotion. She focused on enjoying the trip and providing support with encouragement to achieve the destination. Her kind and caring persona touched all who really knew her. Jane listened to people, animals, birds, and plants with a quiet intensity that invoked love and respect. Her assembly of friends spanned three generations that adopted her as a second mother, sister, or daughter. They all adored her and knew it was mutual. Most of all, Jane loved being a wife and mom to her two boys, Jeffrey and Philip. Every summer, barring three years living in England, she spent with the boys on Cape Cod. Our home was a magnet for all their friends. There were 25 summers of boyhood gatherings with memorable moments that Jane orchestrated. She was an exceptional cook and provided a compassionate ear with motherly advice. The beaches and water of Cape Cod provided the rest. During the winters, it was skiing in Vermont. She was an avid reader with an appreciation of, an, of a multitude of subjects. Jane enjoyed discussing her readings with all her friends. This brought her great pleasure and a broad understanding of life. Early on, she became wise beyond her years. We all benefited from that wisdom. Jane was a knowledgeable gardener, having learned a great deal while living in England for three years. Her gardens in West Harwich are beautiful. Taking her skills as a volunteer to the Dennisport Library, she was known as the Plant Lady. She loved her many years with people and plants in Dennisport. During Jane's lifetime, she was blessed with a treasure chest of wonderful experiences that she so enjoyed and was grateful for them all. She carried a special place in her heart for her magnificent Harlequin Great Dane, Dapper Dan. However, it must be noted that his crown was challenged by a friendly cadre of feline competitors. They represented many different breeds, but the feral cats she domesticated over the years were miraculous. Molly was the last and for years took walks with her husband without a leash. She also loved to travel the world. Trips were initially a family affair oriented to expose us to diverse cultures and events. 
Later, she and her husband traveled frequently for business and pleasure for well over 30 years. New Year's Eve at the Lido in Paris, the bullet train to Mount Fiji, Fuji in Kyoto, cruising through the Panama Canal, the casino at Baden-Baden, or a bed and breakfast in Montreal. The USA was also a favorite destination from sea to shining sea with all her majestic beauty. It was lights out, it was lights out fun and uniquely planned by Jane and her husband. Jane is survived by her husband Daryl and her sons Jeffrey and wife Dee Dee and Philip. She is also survived by grandchildren Morgan and husband Dr. Glenn McFadden, Jeffrey John, Aaron, and great-grandchild Jude, sister Elizabeth Blum and brother Philip Smith, who was predeceased. The professional support and caring by the Visiting Nurse Association of Cape Cod was greatly appreciated. Services will be private, and a celebration of life is being planned for a later date. Donations in Jane's memory may be made to Friends of the South Harwich Meeting House, Incorporated, P.O. Box 786, Harwich, Mass. 02645. Our next obituary is for Lawrence J. Koss, Harwichport. Lawrence Koss of Harwichport, Massachusetts, formerly of Bethesda, Maryland, passed away on September 14th at the age of 86. Beloved husband of Virginia for 61 years and the loving father of Brian and his wife Janice and cherished grandfather of Mackenzie and Abigail. A memorial service will be held November 3rd at 10.30 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church in West Harwich. For words of comfort, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. And our final obituary is for Alfred Al Cristofiori. Alfred Al Cristofiori of Chatham, formerly of Waltham, died September the 23rd, 2023. Visiting hours are on Thursday from 3 to 7 p.m. And I presume that's Thursday today. Funeral Mass will be held at Sacred Heart Church on Friday tomorrow at 11 a.m. For complete obituary, guest book, and additional information, please refer to brascalfuneralhome.com, and that's B-R-A-S-C-O funeralhome.com in Waltham. The phone number is 781 893 Zero. We still have time for the news. This article is Repairs on Cape Bridges Give Planners Time for Rebuild, State Says. This is reported by Walker Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. The balance of trying to fund ongoing repairs of the Bourne and Sagamore bridges, yet move toward the $4 billion bridges replacement project was a topic of discussion at a Tuesday meeting in Buzzards Bay with local, state, and federal agencies represented. Quote, what we're trying to do is just keep things moving along at a sufficient condition by doing smaller maintenance work like you're seeing here, 
Brian Cordero with the State Department of Transportation said, referring to the current Bornbridge maintenance plan through November. Quote, we want to make sure that we're sort of working between those lines to remain competitive for replacement because we know that's the right option moving forward, close quote. There was a concern expressed at the meeting about the potential for a mandatory major rehab for the Bourne Bridge if a bridge inspection by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers deemed major infrastructure rehabilitation necessary. Cordero, the state project manager for the Cape Cod Bridges program, said in, in the meeting, major rehabilitation would interfere with financing the replacement project. The state's Cape Cod Bridges program is meant to address, quote, the aging Sagamore and Board Bridges and the surrounding roadway networks, close quote, as one of the most important transportation programs in the region. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers project manager Craig Craig Martin said in the meeting, everything is, quote, headed in the right direction in terms of replacement opposed to major rehabilitation, but a contingency plan is being thought out. Quote, we're confident we can carry the Bourne Bridge for at least the next five years, potentially longer, Martin said. But the plan is to be ready should we move to that sort of major rehab phase. The next Army Corps of Engineers inspection for the Bourne Bridge is scheduled for next year, Martin said. Officials from the State Department of Transportation delivered a presentation to an advisory group consisting of over 12 local, state, and federal agencies and organizations on Tuesday hashing out design considerations and updating the group on the Bourne and Sagamore Bridges replacement project. The meeting, which was held at Massachusetts Maritime Academy, included representatives from the town of Bourne, the Cape Cod Commission, U.S. Senator Edward Markey's office, Massachusetts State Police, the Federal Highway Administration, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce, among others. On the agenda for discussion were design considerations for the bridge's frames, multimodal accommodations for pedestrians and bicyclists, vehicle lane size and incline and decline grades. Much of the presentation and discussion centered around considerations for the town of Bourne. Quote, the bridges are essentially a town of Bourne local road, said Joe Cahill, design lead from HNTB, the engineering consulting consultancy contracted by the State Transportation Agency for the project. Both the Sagamore and Bourne bridges, which cross the Cape Cod Canal, are in Bourne. Earlier in the year, Bourne town officials had expressed concern about what they said was the town's lack of involvement in the process and poor communication between the town and state officials. Although technically open to the public and the media, the meeting was not publicly advertised ahead of time, and a link to join over Zoom was not provided to the Times, one official said, because it was intended for official stakeholders, such as regional and state officials. In-person attendance was permitted for the public and media. Two members of the public in attendance, Stephen Buckley of Chatham and John York of Bourne, voiced their concerns about the lack of public engagement at the meeting. York said specifically a lack of disabled representation on the group was concerning. 
The project includes multimodal accommodations for pedestrian and bicycle use, with a portion of the design plan aimed at accommodation for disabled people, despite a representative disabled presence at the meeting. We are open, and we have a process if we wanted to add another member, said Gareth Saunders, the State Transportation Agency's Legislative Affairs Highway Liaison. He added he had a conversation with a Born Select Board member about including a disabled representative to the advisory group. Quote, I think that makes a lot of sense, close quote. Kadira said the information discussed at the advisory group meeting would be presented to the public at a yet-to-be-determined date. He said the advisory group is not a decision-making body and is not subject to the state open meeting law. Quote, we wanted to be able to have a more open discussion, a more candid discussion, with people who have key interests in the project, whose professional job it is to inform us, Cadero said. Quote, I think everybody needs to have a degree in confidence in the folks in this room to be able to move this project forward on the right path. That's all we have time for today. This is Daphne. I've been delighted to be with you, and I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. <music>